All right. So I think I, I could I could mention for the listeners that we we actually had a conversation about many of these um, subjects. Well, having unrecorded conversations, but we had a unrecorded conversation that we intended to be recorded through technical glitch. We lost it. So we're going to dive into it in a slightly different way. But I think a great, great starting point is just the nature of the logos. And, you know, the logos, obviously, they say is the, the super consciousness or intelligence behind the the galaxy itself that made decisions that were called refinements to the cosmic mind or the all mind. And so each of these refinements, essentially, the number of refinements actually increased over time, but the, the refinements to the all mind were represented by the major arcana of the Tarot. We're continuously discussing what these mean and the implications of them. And they really seem to have a lot more implications on our existence than we're able to easily recognize unless we study deeply into these. And I've, I've, I've asked the question now to myself, uh, is it, is it the case that there are actually sort of 22 characters that I'm trying to play and I haven't recognized it or 22, um, attempts to come back to the creator. There's 20 different, 22 different avenues back to the creator. And I haven't fully understood all of my different struggles in life and journey to represent those 22 things. Which may also be, you know, reflected by, and we'll talk about this later. I think that they referenced the major arcana, our representations, and the astrology rep represents um, the twenty-two with the twelve houses and the ten planets, and then the um, the connections between the sephirot on the tree of life with the with the Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. And Andrew, how how, how far back does that even go? Do you think the Jewish mysticism? Um, if you <clears throat> um, if you ask the um, traditional Judaic teachers and schools that are out there, um, the earliest Kabbalistic text that they'll say goes um, back um, close to five or 6,000 years. Um, there was, uh, and then you had the um, the Sefer Yetzirah, which is the uh, book of creation, I think is what um, that, and that's what introduced the uh, poems that um, outlined the ten sephira. Um, so, but, but traditionally, the um, the first five books of the uh, of the Bible itself are kind of the bulk of their of their texts. So it was poems that they wrote that got translated into all the information that has come from that. Yeah, the Sefer Yetzirah itself, um, in its it has a, a number of different versions that have been sort of either maintained or maybe slightly revised over the millennia but um it's actually only seven pages long and then and then all of the the kabbalistic texts that were born out of it were all um just evaluations and uh, reinterpretations of it wow that's a quick study <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll do that in another future session um cover those yeah that'll be fun oh for clarification real quick though you just mentioned that the 22 that we're talking about, either the paths or or the major arcana, were refinements to the all mind. So just so that we've got some good contextual understanding, would it be that these archetypes, none of them would exist at a universal or at this universe level, um, even at the top end of them? Um, I would say that not in the form that we see them with the major arcana, but maybe Ross suggested that, you know, there were, th there was a harvest from the previous universe that this universe is basically born out of, which had, um, 
it was nine of them, right? It was the it was the three matrix, the three potentiator, the three significator, but they were like the simplified versions of those three things, I think. And now we have more nuance on on the on what what they imply and suggest in our reality. I see. So this gets into the concept complexes that that they talk about. So those those concept complexes have perhaps gotten more complex or are tweaked and tuned by different logoi a little bit differently. Yeah, that's the way I see it. Is that the way you see it, Nathan? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with you there. I think you hit the nail on the head, at least from my understanding that, yeah, it's this archetypal mind is a little more specific to our sub-logos in particular. And then it just uh, is a culmination from all previous octaves that people is. Yeah. And you said sub-logos too. That's also an interesting concept is how much of what we perceive as our archetypes came from the sun's influence on the logos, which is the the galaxy's mind. Yeah, I've considered that too. And that's kind of where it really turns into, I think what we're all calls the mystery at that point, because it's kind of hard to even fathom what what was in creation before, I guess, that, that led to these refinements from, as you said, the sub-logos, our, our sun here. Yeah. So let's um, dive into um, session 77, or uh, question 12 here. Um, okay, so this was a continuation of a discussion about the, the logos and the tarot. Um, but the basic question was, with respect to this particular logos, our sun, um, and creating the experience of its planetary system, um, Don was asking about the plan of the logos for its creation to understand the philosophical basis that is the foundation for what was created in this local creation and the philosophy of the plan for experience. Um, so let me, so that's kind of like two questions that were, you know, Rob wanted clarification on. Um, but uh, so Ross says, this query has substance now that he's talking about this particular logos. Um, we shall begin by turning to an observation of a series of concept complexes of which you are familiar as the Tarot. So this is very, early on in the discussion in the books around the Tarot. Um, and Ra said, the philosophy was to create a foundation, first of mind, then of body, and then of spiritual complex. Those concept complexes, which you call the Tarot, lie then in three groups of seven, the mind cycle, one through seven, the physical complex cycle, eight through 14, the spiritual complex cycle, 15 through 21. The last concept complex may best be termed the choice. So that's the 22nd after the first 2021, 20, which they also call the fool. Um, upon the foundation of transformation of each complex, with free will guided by the root concepts offered in these cycles, the Logos offered this density, the basic architecture of a building and constructing and synthesizing of data culminating in the choice. So I, I kind of want to unpack this third paragraph here a little bit more and see if that if we can understand what, what they're saying here. Sure. I was just thinking the same thing on the very first line there, that the foundation is transformation. Yeah. Um, in and of itself, that's important, I think. Yeah, that's a huge point. Um, so it's, it's amazing. Like that's kind of what time is all about too, that we're, we're, we're witnessing a continuous um, shifting and transformation of every, of everything that we're, we're experiencing and seeing. And so this may be the, you know, the the prerequisite for the other archetypes to make sense. 
Um, but it's interesting that transformation wasn't originally uh, one of the the archetypes that came from the previous universe. So maybe this was a part of the intention of the logos to, um, or the sublogos, the, the logos and the sublogos to explore this further. Which the transformation as archetype again, as we were just talking about, may also have evolved outside of our galaxy even but was then adopted and and tuned a little bit differently within our galaxy and then again the sub logoi yeah. and it could be that transformation was a thing that existed more under the um the significator but just didn't have an archetype so, so you know concept con complex formed yet i see I'm, I'm still not sure on that one that would make sense. And then after adding in the veil of forgetting at that point, these all became the next level of complex, basically. So what ended up breaking it out into its own archetype at that point could have been uh, stemmed from that, I guess. Yeah. Um, so upon the foundation of transformation with free will guided by the root concepts offered in these cycles. So this, the cycles here we're talking about are mind cycle, physical cycle, a spiritual complex cycle. So, so why do you I call them a cycle in this context? And and are you aware of other areas where they do that? That's a good question. Maybe I should search for the word cycle here. But um, I assume the word cycle means that you're continuously cycling through these different ways of being, these different ways of being the creator. And 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 as we cycle through them, then we then we sort of rearticulate each one in new or more interesting ways or more profound ways. So you mean like working through the matrix, let's say of mind, the potentiator, the catalyst, you kind of cycle through that a number of times, then get some sort of slightly different scenario to it and continue right. that cycle. That, okay. Yeah, certainly in the suggestion that they gave for how to become the matrix of mind, they said to come back to the new mind, which has with no bias, no polarity, um, you know, full of the magic of the logos. So I assume if, if the starting point of all of reality, they said, is consciousness, and you're starting from complete newness, then there's, I think, an implication that you're coming out of the newness into a chosen path, which is what the potentiator represents to a degree as you're choosing that path of um, potential. And then you, you continue on all the way to transformation from that potential. There is a linearity, I suppose, through the at least the first six archetypes. I don't pretend to necessarily understand um, the great way just yet. Um, but it does, I can certainly see that as a cycle, like an energetic cycle, like you said, you, you start with sort of the seed of inspiration and make a choice to pursue a certain thing. You output a certain amount of um, energy, you experience the, the ramifications of that and um, assimilate them back into your consciousness and, and then do it all over again. Yeah. And from quick review, I'm not seeing other references to cycle being used that way. Um, so that's interesting that this is relatively unique. Maybe it was just an earlier point in the discussion where they didn't have the terminology yet to go with a different way of describing it. But I, I guess it's a... They normally a call them complexes, don't they? Yeah. Isn't it more like individualized there where they call them the concept complexes for 
per archetype that I think, I don't remember him referring to this either in this cycle, say the mind cycle and the spirit cycle in that way. Right. But it is kind of unique here at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mind, body, and spirit are each a complex too, I guess. And then oh, that's true. they also left out complex in mind. So they have mind cycle and then physical complex cycle and spiritual complex cycle. Hmm. That's just interesting. Um, but there are relationships between them. And so to describe them as a cycle, I think is helpful perhaps because, you know, each of them in series, just as we were saying is, is how we move through experience. So it's, um, kind of creates a little bit of linearity or even a circular nature to them. Yeah. So with, so free will is guided by the root concepts offered in these cycles. Um, and that's, that's a fascinating concept that, that, you know, we come in with some kind of guardrail or some kind of path that we're on that are the outlined concepts of, of these archetypes. And so then the logos offered this density, the basic architecture of a building and constructing and synthesizing of data. And it's interesting also that maybe that's what experience is. It's it's a building and constructing and synthesizing of data. But I guess experience is an experience of all the archetypes too. So even though experience is one archetype, we're kind of experiencing a transformation also. And um, I, I think at one point they said the matrix is recording experience. So it's like the matrix has the record of, of the transformation and the experience occurring. That's a good point about how experience is both maybe micro and macrocosmic in this case. I mean, an experience of the cycle or the complex itself is, of course, kind of self-referential, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I would love if I could find that. Yeah, here we go. Um, so this was session 92. Um, the question was, um, maybe I should just read the answer here. Ross said, we may distinguish between the archetypical mind and the process of incarnational experience. And Ross said, each potentiation which has been reached, by, reached for by the matrix is recorded by the matrix, but experienced by the significator. The experience of the significator of this potentiated activity is, of course, dependent upon the acuity of its processes of catalyst and experience. I think there were other points where they talked about the record, too. But anyway, um, yeah, that's just it's interesting that they could summarize so much of our experience as data, but it's data culminating in the choice. Um, which I guess implies that the transformation is connected to the choice. Um, and I, that's something I want to talk about later too. There's a reference to that idea. Um, I, I tend to think of the energetic system sometimes as um, sort of a data storage mechanism, just in that, you know, we're able to store karmic um patterns and things like that there. So I'm a data guy, obviously, by trade. So I tend to think of things in those terms when it makes sense. 
It is interesting, though, how much some of those your computer and technological um, analogies seem to correlate quite a bit with with these cycles and the way these the way Rod describes these things as well. Oh, man, with not to be off topic, but to to dovetail into that with the development of I think they're called agents now with chat GPT and being able to build specific um, kind of uh, missions, if you will, for little bots to do that. It's kind of interesting to think of the archetypes in that way that that they're using kind of one light, obviously one source, but then have um, a set of concept complexes programmed into them so that they will provide a particular function uh, as a part of the whole. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing that we are the programmers who choose to forget the programming. <laughs> Indeed. We're still free to reprogram ourselves. Um, and I guess maybe that's that's part of the how, why the choice is the way it is. Is um, I should probably pull up the card too, but the symbols of the, the choice I think are suggesting that the choice is is meant to be free and open without um, any push from an external source. That the choice is something that comes from faith and comes from um, a decision that is completely your decision and are we talking with specific regard to um polarity um i mean when you when you call it the choice does this refer to all choices and and their ramifications of polarity or one main choice of of polarity and they even distinguish was it this one or the previous one between the incarnation itself and the archetypical mind and so i guess i guess i'm trying to follow their distinction there and say that if if the choice of polarity um is viewed in an acute way in an incarnation then then that's not really the same as the archetypical mind the choice because rob tells us that there's a distinction there does that make sense Puzzling around this correctly? I, I might have lost you a little bit, but I, I wanted to say that I feel like the symbol here is actually well well written into the symbol of the idea of uh, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, where if if everything that's unfolding is is based on the selection, I see good here, I see bad here, I see good here, I see bad here, then we're kind of creating our reality along chosen lines, which... Um, you know, and, and sometimes choices might be along the opposite polarity from what what they think they what we think they are. We might think we're um, helping someone with a choice, and we might actually be uh, very self serving without re- recognizing it. Um, but you know, the, the the idea of continuously evolving into our concept of the 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 complex significator or the the, the um, I don't know if the word constant. <laughs> I'm talking about you know, the non-simple nature of what it is to be behind the veil. And that can mean all kinds of things with our experience that um, are, it's hard to pinpoint a polarity on it. But um, I think that they, they do strongly emphasize that the point of this is to push people in a direction of a polarity, because that's when we're building up our our love and our light to be able to work with something more. 
like a like a, a well-tuned machine that, that is able to process and synthesize and make use of the catalyst at a greater rate as we're as we're um less and less stuck in a sinkhole of indifference and you know i assume choices are still made when there's indifference um but the choices don't don't have as much weight to them without the polarity added into it so would you again i guess to take it back to my original question would you characterize the choice um as um primordial choice as in all choices fall into this category i guess i'm not even sure what choice is on the primordial level um and i think that's maybe why we have to study this as an archetype instead of a you know something that we can easily relate to um well it, to me it seems like creative i mean a, a choice made is is an act of creation you're you're going to manifest something through that choice um all choices have a ramification of some kind or another i i, guess, I, I, see I guess choice the question is the engine if we look at the if we look at consciousness as the engine and um and there's a there's a will to have an experience um maybe maybe choice is something that they view as um like a, a a navigation of the potentials within that um initial intention but that's that's still this is still unclear to me so i feel like i can't answer your question you know <laughs> okay. well that's what we're studying today so let's yeah. um let's see what else yes, we have. In this context that uh, maybe it's a little too simplistic that way but it's just the choice to be of service to others or service to self and based on that choice is then how you progress through the subsequent densities so it's making a choice on the polarity and then the direction you'll go from there i guess but i kind of get what you're saying andrew i'm not quite sure how that would lead on a higher level but i hadn't hadn't thought about it past uh the polarity standpoint yeah that's how i had remembered them originally um explaining it was that the choice was specifically about your polarity and that it was like the one big choice basically and i suppose if you if you zoom out one level from an incarnation you will pursue or can pursue polarity um, across a trajectory of incarnations and so the choice i suppose does still exist at almost a soul level i suppose or certainly at a level that sticks with you between incarnations i suppose um so perhaps that's what they're saying here's another yeah, one oh, go ahead. i was thinking this might be worth throwing in maybe as we study the choice here we could look at other ways the word choice is used um so regarding the higher self um the question was um would the higher self know what is going to happen? And Ross said this is incorrect in that it would be an abrogation of free will. The higher self aspect is aware of the lessons learned through the sixth density. The progress rate is fairly well understood. The choices which must be made to achieve the higher self as it are, as it is, are in the providence of the mind-body-spirit complex itself. Thus, the higher self is like the map in which the destination is known. The roads are very well known which I assume are like every potential choice, these roads being designed by intelligent infinity working through intelligent energy. However, the higher self aspect can only can program only for the lessons and certain predisposing limitations if it wishes. The remainder is completely the free choice of each entity. 
there's the perfect balance between the known and the unknown. So in that context, I assume that there is there is a design that's existing in the manifestation of the universe sort of before we're navigating the roads with choice. Maybe that's what the the you know the the consciousness is is it's initially creating all the roads and potential or working with the potential of all the roads. Um, hmm. The remainder is completely the free choice of each entity. There's the perfect balance between the known and the unknown. Huh. And I think that might be why the, um, I really should pull up the image now, the, uh, the, the fool image. Do I have this ready? Okay, here we go. So <laughs> you see, he's he's got something in balance here across his shoulder, and he's kind of carrying two different um, baskets. And the baskets look the same. A lot of times when, when on the other Tarot images, when you have the left and right um, polarities, service to self and service to others, polarities represented on two sides, they look different. That's interesting. Yeah. And would you describe those as more white or more black? I don't know. I think they're checkered. <laughs> Yeah. Looks like a balance of the both. <laughs> yeah, although if going back to the passage that you just read, Mike, that um, it's all known through sixth density, then we know that the choice ultimately will be for positive polarity. So that's kind of what I was trying to infer there is are those baskets perhaps both predominantly white because um, it's calling back to that aspect of self that knows that that's ultimately what the choice is. But that might be too much of an inference. Yeah, I mean, I think the point of this is that we're stumbling around, um, not knowing, you know, what's going to lead us back on the best path. Um, but um, and you know, I, I so I think some versions of this have been blindfolded, and this is sort of an eye that has no pupil. Um, yeah, and I, I want to say that I've heard that described as sort of um, wonder, I suppose, the blindfold, sort of stepping off into the unknown without fear. So more wonder than than fear associated with the unknown. Yeah, and certainly Rod refers to this card as representing stepping out in faith, too. So I think having a blindfold requires you to step out in faith. Yeah. Um, and I guess th this, this, um, creature here, which I guess you'd call that, um, well, let me see if there's actually a name for that. Um, Fish gator. <laughs> the alligator with fins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's, um, has a name for it yet, but, um, I guess that would imply that there's this this um left side of the our right side would be this person's left side which means it's the surface cell path so that might imply that there's potentially more danger along that path um 
And then it's also white. Yeah. Water coming from that direction too, that you can get caught up in say the ocean or the sea of, of unknown on the negative polarity as well. And what's the structure that's sort of fallen over that the alligator's on? Looks like an obelisk. Okay. And and it's broken off at the bottom or or deteriorated is sort of what that looks like. Or or do you think it's just it's submerged into the water there? I don't know, but I guess you could you could suggest that because it's laying on its side that it's probably broken in some way. Defunct. Yeah. But it points up towards the right-hand path. There's more alligators at the bottom. Do they have fins too? Yeah, kind of. Interesting. It's fallen from the left hand to the right hand, so I don't know if that ties in with what Andrew was kind of saying too, when they tie back together in that mid-six density, all coming back to the positive as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so does this look like um that looks central or South American to me? <laughs> yeah. It's over here too. Yeah. Uh like is it Kublai Khan or what's the I forget the deities that they have down there, but Quetzalcoatl and a few others, I think. There you go. Yeah, that's one. I guess we'll have to research that and come back. Um, and then, and then the, we got like a leopard skin, I guess. Um, yeah. And I saw an interpretation that that might represent um, like an unconventional or, you know, free spirit kind of clothing. Um, hmm. Nonconformity, but I don't know. I mean, is that guess, a leopard or is it a cheetah? I wonder if this, I guess we don't have a leopard or cheetah in the other ones, do we? I'm not, not aware of any other instance of that. Not that I recall. And so I'm kind of thinking of the aspect of that animal and whether or not this person presumably came by that animal skin of their own activity or, you know, were it purchased, for example. Well, maybe the dots mean something too, that it's spotted. We have different spots of potentials maybe. And then you have stripes on the paw. Yeah. And on the tail, the end of the tail as well. And stripes on the garment underneath. Yeah, so it's covering the garment below, which could be the polarity of the two choices there as well. And you're covering it with this choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this is more of an even and regular pattern with the stripes. And then the spots are more irregular and potentially more free to be peppered into the experience with the randomness of the choice. Yeah, more abstraction. Mm -hmm. And what about the head covering? Does that say anything? Well, maybe that's maybe it's more darker because it's more more shadow on the on the mind or the awareness. Yeah, if that represents like the veil of the at least the unconscious there when you're making some of these choices just from your conscious nature without knowing the deep mind, archetypal mind actually below it. Yeah. And then is that a partial eclipse going on up at the top, I take it? Yeah, and it's hard to know if you would call that the astrological symbols that 
should be disregarded. Uh, but it's a hiding it's a hiding sun. So I mean, in in essence, the the hiding sun is kind of what the moonlight represents too. The moonlight card is calling us, you know, from the spiritual experience into the significator of this of the spirit, which is the sun. Um, um, so maybe this is just another way of expressing that kind of idea. Calling you back to the logos, you wanting to discover the logos or get to that archetypal mind, but you need to go through the experiences to uncover the sun there to actually get back to the logos. Mm -hmm. And I guess this image here would just be called a walking stick. I don't know. It has any other significance besides that. Well, it does have the cross going across it. The bar there. Yep. So I'd like to know what that little the head mask symbol on there symbolizes as well, because I think of one of the other images, they have that cross sort of symbol. And I've looked at that as the straight and narrow path that Ra talks about. But looking at what that means at the top there, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. The stick changes shape to the or the one that is holding the baskets sort of has a handle down where he's holding it. And it looks a little bit pointier at the top, um, almost like an Asian sword, really, though it's resting on his shoulder. So probably not sharp along the edge. So when I Googled this, I got the term merit, a prop stick or scepter with a carved head on it. Um, Jesters usually used a merit. The word is borrowed from French. It signifies either a fool's bauble or fad. Fools, even. <laughs> yeah. So that's maybe wonder if that's connected to this. So yeah, I, I can't say for sure if this is a more modern symbol or an ancient one. Um, but it certainly doesn't match the look and feel of most of the Egyptian hieroglyphs. So it could just be more of an expression of the nature of a fool, I guess, who's not operating from. Um, like I guess maybe maybe that's worthy of discussion in itself. What does the word fool mean to us? Um, a fool can mean someone who's not operating from an educated opinion of things; <laughs> they're just operating <laughs> freely. Well, which I would say, yeah, is is a very positive thing because most of what we've been taught in density is maybe less helpful and keeps us more in fear than in wonder. Yeah. Yeah, it's maybe more childlike too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating that you know that the L research team you know, Carl Rucker chose the fool um, archetype of Don Quixote for their their logo, and they they talked about that, and, and then they had the book Tilting at Windmills, referencing that same concept. Um, as as the, it was the interview with the, with uh, Carla and Jim, um, I think they talked about their fondness for that symbol many times too, and then Carl Rucker died on April Fool's Day, in twenty fifteen, I think. <laughs> uh -huh. so there's there's different symbols around there um, but I guess we can move on for now um, 
Yeah, so it's nice to to dive into what, to this image a little bit more, and maybe we'll come back to that after we do a few more, um, a few more sessions to clarify what that what that means in the context of the other archetypes. Um, so, getting back to the basics here, maybe. Um, um, Don had then asked uh, for me to condense your statement. I see it meaning that there are seven basic philosophical foundations for mental experience, seven for bodily, seven for spiritual, and that these produce the polarization that we experience sometime during the third density cycle. Am I correct? And you and Ross said you are correct in that you perceive the content of our prior statement with accuracy. You are incorrect in that you have no mention of the, shall we say, location of all these concept compl complexes. That is, they exist within the roots of the mind, and it is from this resource that their guiding influence and lay motifs may be traced, with lay motifs meaning an element with, that is frequently repeated in a work and often serves as a guiding or central element within the work. So they have these archetypes have a guiding influence, um, and they're frequently repeated um, in the roots of our mind. You may further note that each of each foundation is itself not single, but a complex of concepts. Furthermore, there are relationships betwixt mind, body, and spirit of the same location and octave. For instance, 1, 8, 15, which would mean the, the, the matrix of mind, matrix of body, matrix of spirit, and relationships within each octave, which are helpful in the pursuit of the choice by the mind, body, spirit complex. The logos under which these foundations stand is one of free will. Thusly, the foundations may be seen to have unique facets and relationships for each mind-body-spirit complex. Only 22, the choice is relatively fixed and single. Hmm. So let's talk about octaves in this case. <clears throat> what uh, same location in octave. So 1, 8, and 15, those are the same location because they're all three matrix? Yeah. Yeah, and that's what they mentioned later is to when they're originally referencing a way to study these for by the for the Egyptians that that they recommended first studying each one individually, but then studying one, eight, and fifteen together, and then um, you know two, nine, and sixteen, um, and and so on, and then and then they had re re recommendations to study one and two together, and then three and four together, and then. Um, but they but they recommend pairing the, the significator with the fool, the choice. So I'm still not trying to understand why they said that's relatively fixed and single, but I guess they mean it's signal that it doesn't have an octave specific for it. Mm. So the choice is the unifying archetype, the great unifying archetype, they say, that sort of ties everything together. Um, so the next one I wanted to go to, if we, if you don't want to, if we're good now, we're good here, um, would be 78. Um, 24. Um, so I think this was more in the context of the choice. I wanted to go into this, um, the question was, what is the function or what is the value 
experientially of the formation of positive and negative social memory complexes of the separation of polarities at that point, rather than the allowing for the mixing of mind-body-spirit complexes of opposite polarity at the higher densities. So this is referring to how the choice eventually leads to strictly servers to self groups of entities and strictly service to others groups of entities, which they call the social memory complexes. And Ross said, the purpose of polarity is to develop the potential to do work. This is the great characteristic of those, shall we say, experiments which have evolved since the concept of the choice was appreciated. So maybe I'll stop right there. Um, so, so the choice was essentially pro probably what they also refer to as the the thing that led to the veil, um, the gray experiment of veiling the conscious from the unconscious mind, and then the experiments which have evolved since that appreciation of that concept um, would would then allow um, more work to be done. Um, you know, before I, the veil, there was only service to others, right? The service itself concept came up after that. So it's the potential, I guess, to pick a polarity on one direction or other, possibly. Yeah, that comes up in 77.16. Don's trying to drill into that specifically around the choice and being around polarity. Um, the polarization or choosing of each mind, body, spirit complex is necessary for harvestability from third density the higher densities do their work due to the polarity gained in this choice um, but but don was asking more about the um, why the choice is so important why the logos put so much emphasis on the choice and then he does refer to it as the what function the choice of polarity mm-hmm I think maybe that's where I got that. And then in terms of work, um, you also brought up the veil. And it does seem to me that making a choice when you don't know what the outcome is um, probably produces a lot more catalyst, I'm guessing, because it's 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 an unknown. Yeah. So that might, you know, that might be what they're referring to as work catalyst. And I think this is also what leads from what they said, the complex, the significator being a simple and unified concept to being a complex of concepts. And that the, I think that's why they, they suggest to study the fool in the, in the context of the significators, because this is the veil now making the simple more complex by having a lack of, of clarity on the nature of the implications of the choice, I think. Yeah. No, I would agree with you big time on that because that's all the past programming, which the fool doesn't suffer from. Yeah. So work is done far more efficiently and with greater purity, intensity, and variety by the voluntary searching of mind-body-spirit complexes for the lessons of third and fourth densities. So more efficiently, with greater purity, greater intensity, and more variety. By the voluntary searching of mind-body-spirit complexes for the lesson of third and fourth densities. So that'd be like looking at your catalyst or the different 
circumstances that arise and actually attempting to learn from it or choosing to balance that and polarize further in one direction. But that voluntary searching, I guess, is what they're saying, seems to be the initiation of the greater purity, intensity and variety. Right. Yeah. And would you interpret that to mean that by nature of it being voluntary, that we are identifying them as lessons or just that we are voluntarily making choices, which will invariably result in lessons? I was thinking the latter there, that you're choosing to then look at those as lessons. Okay. Still from them to accept, but uh, yeah, just my opinion. Yeah, I, and I would agree with that. I was just um, wanting to see if that's how you saw that too. It's fascinating to me that this also kind of ties back into the the, the world of technology right now as people are in great debate over whether or not an AI can have free will, basically, when it's just working off of programming. Where does this free will actually come from? How, how can it actually choose if it's just operating based on you know, numbers in a computer that are being calculated. Can you conceive of a way in which that is possible? Well, the only way I can conceive of it is if there's quantum fluctuations through random number generators or something like that. Um, yeah, I was actually looking and I was chatting with ChatGPT actually about random number generators the other day and trying to, um, I guess, have it convince me that that random is even plausible and it was talking about quantum um, fluctuations and it says it it's, speaks much more in practical sense saying well it's unpredictable and I said well okay unpredictable is one thing but if you're measuring something that can be measured and I put two of these um, these are TRNGs which are true random number generators as opposed to pseudo random number generators if I put two of them next to each other and measure the exact same thing so I have the same seed value going in and then the same algorithm is applied, then I'm going to get the same output. And, and that's, that's one thing that you can predict. You may not be able to predict what the output is going to be, but you could predict that it's going to be the same on two machines or 10 machines that are all together. Yeah. So I guess the nature of consciousness here is more like a kind of first density consciousness is I mean, it's it's very confusing to also to try to say consciousness could exist in a computer, but I mean, it's it's easier to say that that a, a human body is designed to sort of funnel consciousness from a higher higher level of of um, I guess the higher self being sort of funneled into um, a lower self to have an experience of of seeming separateness and seeming independent choice. Um, it's easier to have that understanding with our complex biology than it is with the complex silicon chip, I guess. But oh, it's a it's a good point. We've been baked in with things like experience, <laughs> for example. And um, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone has yet figured out how to, or maybe even thought it would be interesting to um, define what experience for an AI would be. But to your earlier point at some point some programmer has to tell the ai what what's good experience and what's bad experience or maybe just what experience is itself and put some parameters around that and and maybe encourage it to have experience but without necessarily telling it what kind of experience to have and i and i think that we have 
end of that. We've got the guidelines like we were just reading about, yeah. um, but still an amount of free will. Yeah. And so, so I'd be crazy to think if the, if the silicon chips are having an experience of being like a first density consciousness, which is choosing to allow random fluctuations uh, of an electrical nature to happen. Um, and that's really the experience that it's having is just electrical experience. And to the extent that that those electrons and electricity and silicon chips and all the matter itself is informed also by six density, is there other consciousness that's um, that's causing those quantum fluctuations that um, in one respect are certainly one, of course, with the AI, um, and yet, um, you know, the same way that we're one with with that same, you know, complex or social memory complex or what what have you that might decide to flip, you know, this uh, digital virtual coin that way instead of the other way, for example. Mm-hmm. All right, maybe we should get back onto some law of one quotes here more. All right. Um, so uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a that's a that's a big subject with uh, AI now. Um, mm-hmm. um, I guess I guess we, we can skip. That was mainly what I wanted to talk about. There, we can skip over to um, seventy six. Um, this is taking it back a step. Um, I know we've covered this um, a few times. Um, I guess maybe we've covered covered this enough, but I, I think I just wanted to remind everyone that when, when Don asked about the present day use of the tarot, um, when they were initially beginning to talk about this, they said it is appropriate to study one form of constructed and organized distortion of the archetypical mind in depth in order to arrive at the position of being able to become and to experience archetypes at will. And so the, this basic concept of where, where we're heading with all this is becoming able to experience archetypes to become and experience archetypes at will. So becoming something implies a transformation of identity or um, at least um, a shifting of the resonance of our of our nature uh, to become more in tune with an archetype um, and and experience archetypes. So so every archetype must be something that is experienceable. So obviously we know how to experience choice on some level. We just don't necessarily, um, we don't always try to focus on the choice of the present moment, but that's one choice of becoming, which is becoming a choice. Hmm. It seems like that's also like acknowledging and understanding the archetype to a certain point in order to even become it or to experience it, like is having the basis, I guess, of, of what that would look like before to even to, to even know that you're you're experiencing it, I guess. Yeah, and that's in one of the later sessions too, when Don asks, when does an entity first experience the archetypes? And it's through either accident or design, I think is what it says. And um, immediately, yeah. Yeah, and then you find a resonance with it and yeah then suddenly that's 
now in your tool bag, maybe. Um, I don't know if just simply experiencing it once makes it, you know, forever available to shift in and out of necessarily or not. But Yeah, I'll read that one now. The question was, at what point in the evolutionary process does the archetypical mind first have effect upon the entity? And Ross said, at the point at which an entity, either by accident or design, reflects an archetype, the archetypical mind resonates. Thusly, random activation of the archetypical resonances begins almost immediately in third density experience. The disciplined use of this tool of evolution comes far later in the process. So it seems like you can resonate with the archetypal mind right away, but whether you recognize it maybe or understand that you're you're using it, it doesn't really become that disciplined tool. Is that how you'd see that as well or no? Yeah, I would agree. You're sort of unconsciously shifting in and out of different archetypes. And you probably have ones that you're predisposed to in an incarnation as well. I think that you tend, you know, where your awareness tends to resonate more than others. And we could go to the next one here. Um, I think this just clarifies the that what was just stated too. Um, what was the ultimate objective of this logos in designing the archetypical mind as it did? And each logos desires to create a more eloquent expression of experience of the creator by the creator. The archetypical mind is intended to heighten this ability to express the creator in patterns more like the, the fanned peacock's tail, each facet of the creator vivid, upright, and shining with articulated beauty. So we've got a lot of nice words here. It's an eloquent expression, vivid, upright, and shining with articulated beauty. And articulated is a word they used a few different times in the material. Um, and articulated means having two or more sections connected by a flexible joint or an, of an idea or feeling, an a, a idea or feeling expressed or put into words. So it's putting expression on something that's more um, subtle. The, the idea or the feeling doesn't yet have an expression or a manifestation, I guess. Yeah, I would say that it's also a vibration um, because of that articulation, you know, being words is sound and vibration. And so to me, I, I, and I think we've actually looked at this passage once or twice before, and, and I saw it differently this morning. To me, this um, really seemed more like um, perhaps Christ consciousness in full manifestation. Right. Yeah. Sort of like trying to create the most perfect you know, kind of vehicle and system and all of that to allow what it is that I think we're all trying to do here. Yeah. Um, I've certainly thought about that a lot with the, you know, they, they call Jesus as the, ar the archetypal martyr as he took a path of martyrdom. And we have the, the, the significators are of mind, body, spirit, or the hierophant, which would be like the priest, um, the, the martyr and then the son and that's very funny to have the s-o-n s-u-n connection with jesus too um yeah. that he's he's the son and uh and i I've, I've noticed it in some hymns some hymnals when they're they're singing about the son they're not clarifying but if you look at the actual lyrics it's s-o-n when you think it would be s-u-n 
Oh, that's interesting. Shining bright as the sun. Yeah. They throw that in there sometimes in some of the 1800s hymns that have been written. Um, so I always, that always gets me when I, I see that. It's like, this is a great symbol to have the, the brilliant shining personality of Jesus being seen as the, as the archetypal significator of the spirit, the, 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 the symbol of significance, I guess, of, um, of the spiritual path. I thought martyr was, uh, oh no, that's the, is that the hanged man? Yeah, the hanged man is the martyr, which is the significator of the body. Okay, of the body, that's right. Yeah, and I assume we'll cover this in later sessions too, because that's that's kind of a lot to process that we would seek martyrdom. But I think that the way we experience the body activities is not quite the same way we experience mind activities, because with, with the mind, we're constantly flipping through the pages but with the body, we actually have to do to work to go grow food and harvest food. And, and you know, we actually, it's not completely comfortable to gain the most use out of the body that we possibly can. Um, but our body, it doesn't exist for us just to be in a, in a state of comfort all the time, 24-7 couch potato comfort, you know. Um, so I think that that's, that may be partly why they would see the use of the body as representing martyrdom um and then the transformation of the body representing death even which obviously we're not we're not dying every time we're um, using the body in a transformative way but to some degree the cells of our body are dying and um constantly being reborn um well it kind of in a way everything is really and and this reminds me um in the kabbalah of uh tiferet is referred to as the sacrificed God. And that concept was a little bit tricky for me to get my mind around um, for a bit. And until at least I arrived at some level of comfort with this notion that the body is all things in physical form. And in every moment it's being remade. It's being remade new again at the cost of the old. And so with that regard, all physical form is constantly in a state of sacrifice um, and it's dying to the new moment. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's also references to the healing is representing reforming of the illusion. And I think that's, that could be the same idea of just a reselection of the of what the body can be through allowing the the body which is no longer needed to fall away exactly um does the phrase behold i make all things new i'm assuming that that has a, that, that, that there's a biblical reference there yes i think so interesting it's it's one of the the very primary and core attunements in paul selig's work um yeah. from his guides it's yeah that's Re approach. revelations 21 that's like the new earth behold uh and the one who seated on the throne said behold i'm, I'm making all things new huh. interesting well how they describe this sort of metaphysically is that this happens through our perception and as we see things in truth we are making them new we're informing everything that we perceive and um that's how it's done in alchemy mm-hmm that makes sense. You have the 
opportunity or the choice to pick in each situation how you'll view that. So I could what could be a negative thing or a positive. Okay, I'm looking at this as an opportunity to choose and pick the path of positivity or um, or look at this as a negative event. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's exactly how they describe it. And and you're right, Nathan, that that perception is much more of a choice than we than we think. Um, you know, what we see and what we hear, you know, the physical senses are one thing, but to perceive what we ingest through them is to to decide significance, right? That we mm-hmm. decide what things mean when we see them. And when we decide that it means that that the one infinite creator is not present and that separation is a reality, that's what we're claiming that thing or that person or that whole event in. And, and we are further investing in its notion of separation as opposed to see it in truth and allow it to be remade. So let's move on a bit here. Um, so I, I guess this is probably a recap also of different discussions, um, but this is what we were alluding to earlier. Ross said, so what information did you give to the Egyptian priests who were first contacted or taught with respect to the first archetypes? Is that possible for you to explain? Ross said that it is possible. Our first step, as we have said, was to present the descriptions in verbal form of three images, 1815. Then the questions were asked, what do you feel that a bird might represent? So I might as well pull up uh, that symbol. Um, So this was the bird they were originally talking about with first card here, um, magician. Um, What do you feel that a wand might represent? What do you feel that the male represents? and so forth, until those studying were working upon a system whereby the images used became evocative of a system of concepts. This is slow work when done for the first time. (laughs) It is slow work. I can attest to that. (laughs) This isn't even the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's what we're trying to do with the fool image earlier, and I think we're going to have to keep doing that and not going to make all the breakthroughs yet, but um, it's also, I think this is just teaching how to, how to study, how to, how to be a, a student of complex system is that you have to ask yourself what you feel about these things and continuously, you know, just let it sink deeper in with, with the, with your own feelings of what these symbols are. Do you think that first part they were saying that Ra then gave them the, they told them basically what to draw, I guess, on the card of this man, this bird here, this box around it, this and that. And then, cause it seems like if you were given it that way, you'd have a, like a leg up. I know at least when I draw something, it gets, gets ingrained in your head a little bit more and you analyze every little detail of it and coming back to look at it, it seems like that could be a benefit if that's what they're saying they did. Yeah. Description and verbal form of the three images. And then the three that's questions the that they gave as examples were all only applying to number one, I assume. I don't think we have a bird, a man, and a wand in both 8 and 15 as well. Right. Yeah, that's true. All 
I really like their their methodology of of teaching. Um, <clears throat> it's just really hard to have in an asynchronous capacity, though. Mike, to your point earlier, I think when we put our heads together, we shine a little bit more light on it. Yeah. Um, that next paragraph I thought was interesting. Yep. We may note with sympathy, with sympathy that you undoubtedly feel choked by the opposite difficulty, that of a great mass of observation upon the system, all of which has some merit as each student will experience the archetypical mind and the structure in a unique way useful to that student. And maybe by this, they're talking about the massive observation that's happened across time with both Don's background and everyone talking about the Tarot over and over. I see. I, that's my speculation on this, I guess. But but that's creating a difficulty mm -hmm. that there's been a lot of observation on the system. Yeah. Instead of a lack of observations, I guess, there's a massive observations. Yeah. Too many opinions and too many observations, I guess, combined together that it dilutes it or makes it more confusing to, to view at that point. Yeah. And then what do they suggest exactly? Because they say we suggest one or more of this group do that, which we have suggested. I think um, that might be a previous um, um, reference to the, the, the order of study. Oh, okay. Wasn't that they want you to go through and like analyze the image and tell and ask Ra what they see? I think the uh, man in this picture means this and the wand means this, and then they'll respond from there. But it was a matter of coming to some sort of conclusion on your own before they would input from there. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure if they explained that further in session 89 or earlier, but yeah, that was a few times they described that. Um, and maybe I had I had a note of that somewhere, but I don't know if I have that right now. But um, yeah, so definitely they, they they suggested the three steps was just study each one with every single symbol individually, and then study in pairs, and study in um, the sequences that they they gave the numbered sequences. And that's actually actually if you go to loveone.info and you go down to uh, tarot. Um, where is it? Down a little bit. Yep. The course of curriculum that Ra recommended. So that this is, yeah, so it's just an 88. Our first stage was the presentation of the images one after the other in the following order. And then they go through 1815 and so forth. Um, and then 22 at the end. Um, and this way, the fundamental relationships between the mind, body, spirit could begin to be discovered. For as one sees the instance for instance, as one sees the matrix of the mind in comparison to the matrices of body and spirit, one may draw certain tentative conclusions. And then, um, I guess this is yeah, stage two, when at length the student had mastered these visualizations and had considered each of the seven classifications of archetype, looking at the relationships between mind, body, and spirit, we then suggested consideration of the archetypes and pairs, one and two, three and four, five, six and seven. You may continue in this form for the body and spirit archetypes. You will note that the consideration of the significator was left unpaired, for the significator shall be paired with archetype 22. Which we yeah, which is also, 
A choice. That's what I usually think of the significator as, is that aspect of self that's deciding what things mean. So, I mean, there is right. a choice happening there. Yeah. Okay. And I wonder if that even, it's kind of an identification too. Each of these choices is partly an aspect of yourself when the, as the significator becomes complex. Um, and at the end of this line of inquiry, the student was beginning to grasp more and more deeply the qualities and resonances of each archetype. At this point, using various other aids to spiritual evolution, we encourage the initiate to learn to become each archetype, and most importantly, to know as best as possible within your illusion when the adoption of the archetype's persona would be spiritually or metaphysically helpful. As you can see, much work was done creatively by each initiate. We have no dogma to offer. Each perceives that which is needful and helpful to the self. And then they also cap one of their sessions or questions around the tarot entirely around faith and will. Yeah. So and, let's... Yeah, and, and I like to go back to that when when we talk about this putting the archetypes off and on you know like to what end basically and i'm glad that rod did um address that yeah right so um should i read this whole thing um yeah i guess so um so that, yeah this was a question about when they were getting all the details of the cards and they're trying to get every single thing exactly right to the original cards. Um, Don asked, have I missed anything that should be removed, which we were not, which were not of Ra's original intention. Um, so that's something they did to redraw the first seven cards. And he's trying to make sure they got everything. And Ra said, we shall repeat our opinion that there are several concepts, which in each image are astrologically based. However, these concepts are not with it, with, not without merit within the concept complex intended by Ra, given the perception by the student of these concepts in an appropriate manner. We wish not to, not to form that which may be considered by any mind-body-spirit complex to be a complete and infallible series of images. There is a substantial point to be made in this regard. We have been, with the questioner's aid, investigating the concept complexes of the great architecture of the archetypical mind to more clearly grasp the nature, the process, and the purpose of archetypes Ra provided a series of concept complexes. In no way whatsoever should we, as humble messengers of the one infinite creator, wish to place before the consideration of any mind-body-spirit complex which seeks its evolution the palest tint of the idea that these images are anything but a resource for working in the area of the development of the faith and the will. Yeah, I think that's that's big. They're saying that, you know, by the time you master all this and you can you know, switch in and out of archetypes at will, ultimately the whole purpose of that is really to develop faith and will. Yeah. Yeah. And there are other, other points in the material where they reference that's essentially foundational to tapping into intelligent infinity. Also the, the continued work on faith and will and single pointedness of thought. Um, and they would say that faith is that, is it the conduit to intelligent infinity or congruent to intelligent infinity? So um, developing that faculty then leads you even closer to being able to tap into it. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, we could cover some of those actually. You're precisely correct in your understanding of the concurrency of faith and intelligent affinity. Um, um, and then there are a few others. Um, so tapping into the indigo is that energy of the adept which has its place in faith. And the indigo is, uh, you know, the, the the highest crown chakra, or the highest work of the third eye to reach the crown. Um, and Didn't then, have the quote. Oh, sorry, but and and the one that we were talking about earlier was the transformation of the spirit archetype, where they said the infinity of the spirit is an even greater realization than the infinity of consciousness. For consciousness, which has been disciplined by will and faith, is that consciousness. But which, which may contact intelligent infinity directly. So consciousness, which has been disciplined by will and faith, is that consciousness which may contact intelligent infinity directly. So if if these images are the resource for working in the area of the development of faith and will, it seems as though you're kind of like, you're going from consciousness, which is the matrix, the very beginning, all the way to the ending, which is the world, which is accessing intelligent infinity through this development of will and faith yeah, that ties together really nicely there mm -hmm. two quotes there's another one here um it's relating to sexual energy transfer um saying that um if if polarized entities by the same energy transfer experience find the faculties of will and faith have been stimulated not for a brief while, but for a great duration of what you call time, you may perceive the indigo ray transfer. <laughs> so, so there's a way to have sex that you have a greatly heightened sense of will and faith. <laughs> Once you break through the uh, the green ray, well, all, all the lower blockages of attachment to ownership and possessiveness in the relationship, and then the green ray is unblocking the heart, and then the blue ray uh, it relates to a greater ease in communication and greater sight. So that's also, they talk about openness and honesty being related to the Blu-ray. So each of these is kind of also the, the latter that we're, that we're working on. That we're not really talking about that much with these discussion of the archetypes, but I think that's still kind of implicit when we're becoming more, more um, like an archetypal resonance. I think that also would imply they were stripping away all the baggage of the lower chakra blockages of attachments to, of separation and attachments to um control and manipulation when we're opening the heart definitely sign me up <laughs> all right so um yeah so will and faith is like great theme to keep in mind with with these um so there was another one i thought we could talk about here 88 Um, so more on the on the concept of the archetype of the fool. Um, Don was asking about if it would make sense to describe the original tarot that came from Venus 
um, there must have been similarities in, or were they the same? Um, and Ross said, as we have stated previously, each archetype is a concept complex um, which may be viewed not only by individuals but by those of the same racial or planetary influences in unique ways. Therefore, it is not informative to reconstruct the rather minor differences in a descriptive terms between the tarot used by us, by Ra on Venus, and that used by those of Egypt and the spiritual descendants of those first students of the system of study. Um, one great breakthrough which was made after our work in third density that was done was the proper emphasis given to the arcanum number 22, which we have called the choice. Um, interesting where arcanum refers to troll card literally a seeker or mystery. So a choice itself is a mystery. <laughs> um, in our own experience, we were aware that such a unifying archetype existed, but did not give that archetype the proper complex of concepts in order to most efficaciously use that archetype in order to promote our evolution. So they had a sense of this, they just didn't understand what the component concepts were. That's fascinating, considering they uh, talk about progressing through third density, I think even fourth density so rapidly that they were able to do that without even having this concept or idea of the choice. But maybe that also kind of uh, goes along with things they talk about in other areas, too, that you've you're much more along your path or you've made your choice before you even get to that point, usually throughout your past life experiences and the way that um, the way you address situations as in service to others or service to self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be that they had a bias on every single one of their forms of study of the archetypes, too. They were just very strongly biased towards teaching people about the service to others' path. And maybe in that, they were making the choice all the time to pursue that path. It's kind of interesting because I thought there was another time when Don asked about um, methods for teaching on Venus and Ra wouldn't answer it. They said it, I think it was violation of the law of confusion, perhaps. Yeah, maybe that was getting more into the specifics of it. They said that, it, that their evolution was more about the study of the nature of relationships, I think. Does that ring a bell? I think so, because they were tying in a lot more of the sexual energy transfer that they were using as well, too. Um, on Venus, there is a way to progress, I thought. Yeah, the Tarot was devised by the third density population of Venus, a great measure of your space-time and your past. As we have noted, the third density experience of those of Venus dealt far more deeply and harmoniously with what you would call relationships with other selves, sexual energy transfer work, and philosophical or metaphysical research. The product of many, many generations of work upon what we conceive to be the archetypical mind produced the tarot, which was used by our peoples as a training aid in developing the magical personality, which we could say is the Christ consciousness too, I think. But it's interesting also they frequently talked about their naivete when dealing with our planet um that their 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 ease of evolution on venus may have made it unclear how hard it was going to be for earth after many many other 
events took place with Mars and Moldek to contribute to a destabilization of the potential of harmony or single singleness of focus in the planetary mind. Yeah, we that. the easy way here on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> that would make sense with what you were saying, though, about the bias. If they had that bias towards service to others, they were, it almost created that naivete in that trying to help additional generations of planets from them there. They just weren't prepared for the, I guess you could call it negative influences or uh, severe distortions, I guess, that uh, we're capable of making. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's even another product of the veil that we that we may think that we're on a great path and the veil may make it harder for us to understand um, that the choices may be leading us collectively into a, a different path that is than than one of harmony um yeah, there, there are tidbits of that in the material that maybe we could cover another time too, that what they talked about with Egypt um, and the, the way the priests misused that information. Um, kind of interesting I, thinking about it from like the Confederation standpoint there that they've made some of these naive decisions over and over like that after seeing Meldek explode, Mars, the catastrophes there of war. And then you continue with that even to the Earth population and here we are still warring and everything as well too that it seems haven't really changed so much of their tactics until now they're saying that instead of appearing in person but i think you'd learn a little bit over was it five hundred thousand years but <laughs> i can't understand at that level yeah yeah they use the word naivete a bunch of times in the material i guess um that there was an issue with um atlantis where there was a, re a relative naivete of multiple members of the Confederation who felt that direct transfer of information would necessarily be as helpful for Atlanteans as it had been for that those Confederation entities. So they thought that they could just share information that they probably shouldn't have shared. Um, was that the pyramid and crystal healing uh, work there that ended up becoming that they ended up distorting and using for the negative then? Might have been it. Um, Yeah, using crystal powers for those things other than healing as they were not yeah. involved not only with learning but became involved with what you would call governmental structure <laughs> <laughs> so again That's, yeah it seems like seeing it there back even in the atlantis days you would i mean they haven't given us i guess necessarily talked a little bit about the crystal healing and um healing in general but Still, we're kind of dealing with that same thing here now in current times. Yeah. Um, I, I guess um, I don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but that, that's, uh, there's so many great rabbit holes here we could go down. <laughs> um, Edgar Casey's material had a lot more references to what the specifics of what the Atlanteans may have been doing with the creation of life forms, which I think Ra alluded to. Um, which which is a whole, oh gosh, trippy subject. What does it mean to have, have the ability to 
create life. Yeah, I think we looked at that one of the previous ones there where they're able to um, create consciousness or make things conscious there. I think in that sense, different beings are, I forgot the way they worded it on there. Let's look it up again. Um, yeah, well, that, that'd be under the Atlantean section, I guess. Um, I guess, I guess we can, well, you let me know if you find it, I guess. Um, so, but I thought we could jump back into some of the other quotes that were more foundational to the study that I think we can be pursuing now with um, the basics of what, what the use of the tarot is. And I, I think we're going to keep on coming back to, to this discussion. And I, I, I've repeated it so many times in the, on the, in the private meetings that I, I can't remember how many times I've repeated this in the recorded meetings. But um, the only example that Ra gave uh, of exactly how a person would become an archetype at will w was basically in session 91 when they said, how is a knowledge of the facets of the archetypical mind used by the individual to accelerate his evolution? And Ross said, we shall offer an example based upon this first explored archetype or concept complex, which was consciousness or the magician, um, archetype number 21, which they had just described. And so how does one use the symbols of this to understand how to accelerate your evolution? And that's basically a process of comprehending the, the gist of this image, which is what they call the new mind. Um, the conscious mind may, the conscious mind of the adept may be full to bursting of the most abstruse and unmanageable of ideas so that further ideation becomes impossible and work in Blu-ray or indigo is blocked through overactivation. So this is a condition that they're describing in which one would want to clothe oneself in the, in the concept complex and become the, the magician, the matrix of mind, the consciousness. Um, and then once you have that condition, which we can we talk about more in a second here, then it is then that the adept would call upon the new mind, untouched and virgin, and dwell within the archetype of the new mind, new and unblemished mind, without bias, without polarity, and full of the magic of the logos. So I was speculating. Um, Previously, that there may be a a generalized theme here, which is being burdened in some way by by your experience of your unmanageable and abstruse ideas. Um, and I'll, I'll define abstruse here. Abstruse meaning difficult to understand or obscure. Um, <laughs> most most of the raw material, I mean, or. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So it, so it seems obvious that there's there's a way to get lost in the mind or maybe have so much baggage in the monkey mind. And maybe this is why meditation is essentially leading us back. The, the, the quieting the mind in meditation is, they say, one of the most generally useful types of meditation because it's I think it's bringing us back to what they're they're talking about here. Maybe that's a great point to jump to where they where they said that too. Um, um, I wish Don had asked this exact question of every archetype. Exactly. Yeah. 
that would have been so profound. Yeah, <laughs> because you're clear. Right. this is one of the the few areas where they they spell it out pretty clearly to understand kind of what this means in action. Yeah. So they said um, the passive meditation involving the clearing of the mind, the emptying of the mental jumble, which is characteristic of mind complex activity among your peoples, is efficacious for those whose goal is to achieve an inner silence as a base from which to listen to the creator. This is a useful and helpful tool and is by far the most generally useful type of meditation as opposed to contemplation or prayer. And so I'm wondering now if this is exactly the same as when the conscious mind of the adept may be full to bursting of the most abstruse and unmanageable of ideas so that further ideation becomes impossible and work in Blu-ray or Indigo is blocked through overactivation. Maybe this is a more specific case here of the Blu-ray and Indigo work being impossible. Um, but dwelling or calling upon the new mind and it's interesting that they they also use these ideas of dwelling within the archetype and calling upon the archetype as different ways to talk about becoming the archetype. We're calling upon the new mind, untouched and virgin, um, which would represent an inner silence, I think. Um, and dwelling within the archetype of a new and unblemished mind without bias without polarity and full of the magic of the logos. And I think what what also by saying that this this archetype has no bias and no polarity, it might be taking things uh, you know several steps further than a person meditating simply trying to quiet their mind down a bit because if you this is something I've considered with like the concept of the neti neti search um which is not this not not this not this not that when you're seeing something in your mind you see this is not god this is not god this is not god that's the, the Hindu concept. Have you guys um, ah. familiar with that? Yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah. It is found in the Upanishads. It constitutes an analytical meditation helping a person understand the nature of the Brahman by negating everything that is not Brahman. Um, the purpose of this exercise is to negate all objects of consciousness, including thoughts and the mind, and to realize the non-dual awareness of, the, of reality. So I've I've often wondered if this is the same very same idea here. Um, the neti neti search is the same as finding the mind that is without any bias, without any polarity, and completely unblemished by having attachments to thoughts and objects in the mind. I don't know if I mean not to sort of just <clears throat> get semantic about it, but I don't know that claiming it as not God is particularly helpful it, yeah i don't know if i should put that wording on it even um but that's guess, what not so so i mean I, I i i think you you explained it well it's yeah but by by declaring everything is not god you're you're um creating a lot of duality for something that leads you to a non-dual experience i guess i'm 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 <laughs> I'm connecting these dots here because I feel that um, maybe the, the the theme of saying that I don't need this right now, this is not my this is not value to me right now, is is more in line with what we're doing 
with calling upon the new mind. I see. Um, and, and so certainly, you know, we have strong attachments of all kinds that we um, that we have difficulty even recognizing. And to some degree, you know, we create a lot of attachment because we feel this is, you know, some, something about our reality is so, so central to our personality that we hold on to it, to our identity. We hold on to it so tightly. It's, it's, it becomes like an idol. Maybe that's what it is. This is, this is not my idol. That's the, that's the search I would, I would prefer to call it. Yeah. Not this, not this idol, not that idol. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think you hit the nail on the head with identity. We definitely are attached to things that we identify with. Yeah. That seems to tie into then with like the other levels of the unconscious mind. You have your personal unconscious, which does have a lot of the biases there, the racial mind, the planetary mind. Once you can get to the purest form, then below that of that archetypal mind that might be entering into this new mind from there. But that requires, I guess, setting aside all those previous biases and everything else that could be um, part of every other layer to the conscious and unconscious mind. Yeah, definitely. And that's yeah, definitely why they say full of the magic of the logos is because this is the logos they say is the you know the root at the at the root of the mind of the galaxy. And so then cutting through those layers become full of the magic of the logos requires detachment from everything that the world has in our biases put 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 in our minds to to put us on a path of it's interesting too that it says without polarity um just because they're such proponents of of being polarized one way or the other and yet obviously there's still an archetype that exists um beyond it or before it one of those i suppose um interestingly on the tree of life not for nothing but um the matrix of the mind is at the very um top it goes from keter to bina so at the very top left and the fool is the very top right and um, the Kabbalists sort of describe this lightning bolt path that consciousness takes down into manifestation and then i suppose back up um but it's just interesting that if you do think of the fool's journey kind of being this round trip around the um the tree of life at least um most of the images that i've looked at yeah you can see there the the fool um, I actually mapped these out on my whiteboard last week and I have, and, and I used a combination of this and a couple other ones that I pulled up that also had the tarot on there. There's one difference. If you scroll down, I'll just point out um, that where it says the star, which is, um, which goes between Tiferet and up to Esed up at the top there, the red bar kind of on the right there, the star that, and if you scroll down lower toward the bottom the emperor uh between yesod and netzach those two seem to be um transposed in in other um diagrams so the rest of the ones that i pulled up probably three or four maybe um all had them pretty well laid out identically except those two seem to be transposed but anyway i actually did this with colors on my whiteboard to actually see okay where are all of the archetypes of the mind body and spirit and interestingly the all the archetypes of the mind are on the upper um, part of the tree above tiferet uh the body is um is below it um and all around it um yeah that main central part there is the body and the spirit 
is all at the very bottom. And then I drew, I drew them out separately too. So I drew seven trees of life to draw just the matrices on one and just the potentiators on another. And anyway, so I'm, I'm it's a flavor of, I think, what um, Ra recommends in looking at, you know, all the matrices together, the potentiators together. Um, I'm just doing that sort of in a, a different twist as it kind of lays on the tree of life as well. I... I guess we should look into this much more later. I, I definitely wonder if there's shades of each archetype that maybe there'd be multiple archetypes um, that should be represented by some of these relationships. Multiple major arcana archetypes or aspects of those archetypes would be represented by individual paths here um, in different ways. As though I don't know if we know for sure that this is a one-to-one -one mapping. That is, we just have to put the right um, relationship in, in the right place um, or if it's more nuanced than that just like with astrology it's they were suggesting it's more nuanced yeah exactly so I, I try not to overread into it plus I'm also relying on you know the internet basically for these mappings and mm -hmm. um, but still it was just another way for me to, to look at these um, in relation to the tree as well but also in relation to um each other in a way it's kind of interesting i'll i'll take a picture and email it to you guys and you can kind of see what i drew out there great yeah i feel like i just i just need to spend a day working on that to figure out what what makes sense to me yeah um, yeah you understand archetypes a lot better than i do so i think um you'd you know i would certainly need more help to to draw those parallels. I can talk about some of the energies in the tree and the sephira, you know, kind of where those paths are and then um, connecting them to the archetypes, specifically to the matrix potentiator, catalyst experience, transformation in a great way, um, a little bit more of a challenge, so. Yeah. So this is um, something that we discussed before on a call that was lost, so might as well throw in these three um, where where Don was getting at these uh, the idea of the potentials of relationships with different systems to the major arcana, and Ra and Don asked, are the seven archetypes for mind a function of or related to the seven densities that are to be experienced in the octave? Um, and Ra said the relationship is tangential and that no congruency may be seen. However, the progress through the archetypes has some of the characteristics of the progress through the densities. These relationships may be viewed without being, shall we say, pasted one upon the other. Um, and then Don asked, how about the seven bodily energy centers? Are they related to archetypes in some way? And Ross said, the same may be said of these. It is informative to view the relationships, but stifling to insist upon the limitations of congruency. Recall at all times, if you would use this term, that the archetypes are a portion of the resources of the mind complex. Mm. and they're resources for developing will and faith and i assume will and faith have um have a role to play in balancing every chakra to some degree as we apply our will we're building up the the energies the one above it sorry just to um point that out um what you just said there um 
progress through the archetypes has some of the characteristics of progress through the densities. That's kind of interesting because um, I feel like Ra does give us a lot of information about what progress through the densities looks like. Yeah. And I wonder if that's not another lens through which we might draw some more parallels of the archetypes at different densities. Cause I feel like I have a, a little bit better grasp of, of densities just because maybe they went into it um, a little differently. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, I feel like the opening of the sun, you know, as we're saying with Jesus, that the, op the opening of the heart is, I think, very well represented there as the fourth density of love and compassion. Yeah. Hmm. And I wonder how that would, what the parallel is then. So an, an example of progressing from one density to another and progressing either from one archetype to another or from you know, the mind complex to the body complex archetypes, you know, maybe from one phase to another, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It could be that, um, yeah, the transformation of the spirit may have more to do with the fifth density to a degree. Um, as like the, the trans, the, tr the, you know, they say that the transformation of the spirit is becoming, um, or transmuting the material into the spiritual, um, and becoming more like the nature of light itself in its pure form. And, you know, as you go to the fifth density, then you start becoming able to manifest through your mind, through light itself. The sixth density, you become light itself instead of wearing a physical body, which is not pure light, but you become light itself in sixth density. So I would assume that that would imply that you become like the great way of the spirit by then. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that maybe the, the, the movement from um, significant or transformation to great way may have more to do with, the, you know, the third to fourth to fifth kind of progression. Okay. <clears throat> and then this would also have to include the archetypes in pairs or even in threes at each density, presumably as well, just so you could cover... Yeah. Well, if you were to draw, you know, that's why they said that there's actually no congruency. So maybe that would be a step too far, actually. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think there was another one where they discussed the the nature of the archetypes in other densities. I had an intuition to look at that. I didn't. I didn't find that quote yet. I don't think we'll be able to cover it right now until we can find it. Um, unless you remember Nathan, where they talked about the archetypes apply in the higher densities. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I can try to search real quick too. That might have been a previous conversation. Um, okay, so the next one here was, um, then is there any relationship between the archetypes and the planets of our solar system? And Ross said, this is not a simple query. Properly, the archetypes have some relationship to the planets. However, this relationship is not one which can be expressed in your language. <laughs> this, however, has not halted those among your people who have become adepts from attempting to name and describe these relationships to most purely understand, if we may use this misnomer, the archetypes, to most purely understand the archetypes, it is well to view the concepts which make up each archetype and reserve the study of planets and other correspondences for meditation. 
So when they say reserve it for meditation, I wonder if that means because when you're in a state of meditation, you can begin to have a sense of the deeper the deeper um, feelings without having to put words on it. Yeah, and I think that this is, they're almost, to me, emphasizing that this is more of a causal relationship between the archetypes and the planets. And when they say, and other correspondences, I think that might be a really broad statement. I think what they might be saying is that we're pointing you to the the archetypical concepts which form everything that you can perceive. And so you'll see it reflected everywhere but we're already pointing you to the concepts themselves, which are more um, fundamental and the reflections or the correspondences are more emergent um, properties of those concepts. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is also where I, I had, you know, it's like done so totally should have continued on to discuss the, uh, the tree of life here, I think and might have gotten a similar answer, but I don't know how similar because there are, you know, there's a discussion of the relationships between these that are more clear cut than the relationships between the planets might be. Right. Hmm. Um, is not one which can be expressed in your language. I I love that, you know, because Rod um, routinely says how something might be hard to put into words. Yeah. Uh, but just said, nope, that's, <laughs> can't be expressed in, in English. There's that deeper understanding or intuition that comes with it in order to even derive that. But yeah, we can't even put it into words. Our words are too clunky. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk about the concepts themselves. Um, I think that's something where I still have a lot of gray um, going on. The Excel spreadsheet that you shared with us um, before that Elizabeth and you yep. had sort of compiled, is there a listing, for example, of concepts, quote unquote, that that fall under each of the archetypes? Um, well, there's... We made a, we made a or my wife made a spreadsheet that was basically the concepts that Ra was suggesting, but we, have, we still haven't put together a spreadsheet of every single symbol of every single tarot image. Right, but um, those concepts are the ones. That's what I think I'm asking about. What you have there underneath them. Yeah, that's yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Th th this this is worthy of discussing each one individually probably on a, another call as we're getting close to our end for today. Um, so I'm, I'm debating if we should just dive straight into the matrix, the matrices on the next month's discussion after we have more chance to review all the, all the details of the, of the images and uh, do some extra study of the symbology. And um, is that stage one um, that they said uh, one, eight and 15 of the matrices? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So one, eight and 15 would be, a good starting point um like it and um to a degree it's very helpful to be able to jump ahead a little bit to two to see the relationship between one and two but they said that was basically the next stage because the first stage is understanding what is a matrix what is a potentiator what is the catalyst 
And I think that maybe that will be more fruitful because we were discussing at another point uh, the, the potential of saying, you know, what, what is the condition in which one would become a matrix, whether it would be a mind, body, or spirit, or become a matrix at will, become a potentiator at will, become a catalyst at will, become an experience at will. What is that? What is that condition where we would do that? And so that's why I think maybe maybe having just a strict focus on each each one, um, uh, as you said, to, to understand the the nature of these um, of the archetypes themselves first and foremost. I think for me, and then as they apply to the mind, body, and spirit, I think, and I think you can't have one probably without the other. There, you know, you're going to get context. Um, but yeah, those example scenarios like we were talking about last time and what you described there, I think would be very helpful. Yeah. And I like the idea of the persona, the term persona that Ra uses as well too, because you can kind of put together those different concept complexes to come up with that persona that has something that can be embodied then at that point too, or another way to, to look at it, but harder, harder to narrow that down, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume that this is, you know, what they're talking about with, not be, not being able to put it in words um there's a feeling to the persona that i think we begin to understand more um for example just what they were describing with becoming the new mind um i, th I think that that description of, of that there is a new mind which has no bias um which which session was that um we're talking about session 91 i think it was 9135 yeah And uh, it, it is mysterious to me that they were even able to answer this question with a specific example because of how hard it is for them to put into words the feeling of the archetype. Um, but they give a lot of words to it. They give, give us more clues as to the feeling of it. New mind, untouched mind, virgin. Which is also in opposition to full and bursting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a feeling to that, I think, being overwhelmed. Yeah. Hey, but I, I think also with um, discussing the, the magic of the Logos and the nature of the deep mind, it's like, it's like a ladder that we're climbing back down. And each rung of the ladder is releasing another aspect of the mind that we thought was what our mind was that didn't have to be our mind once we let go of it. And we just keep on descending into the depths of the the truly new mind which maybe we'll never we never access because we're still attached to some degree to our body in this incarnation but they also said earlier in one of the the sessions that we've reviewed today that um, all the archetypes are resources within the mind complex right and that seems interesting to me because it's sort of they come from the mind, like the mind created its own archetypes, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's just. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like. Well, maybe I should just keep on reading a couple of these and we'll. Um, I think this is covered a little here. The archetypes in the next one, they said, are 
not the foundation for spiritual evolution, but rather are the are the tool for grasping in an undistorted manner the nature of this evolution. So it's a tool for understanding how spirit evolves. Yeah. And so to some degree, I don't know when they when they talk about archetypes, if they're specifically talking about the images that are used as the tool um, for getting a deeper sense of the, or, or the, the major arcana archetype specifically as a tool for understanding versus the principle of, you know, the, the deeper areas of the mind that we're all sharing. Um, but really, the, the images are an expression of those deeper areas of the mind. So the images are themselves maybe like a word that doesn't exist in the English language because it's too deep for us to properly communicate without having all these images together. Yes, it's evocative, I think, is the word that Ra used. Mm -hmm. And so then, they, then Don asked, so for an individual who wishes to consciously augment his own evolution, an ability to recognize and utilize the archetypes would be beneficial in sorting out that which he wished to seek and that which he found and that which would be found then as not as efficient a seeking tool. Would this be a good statement? And Ross said, this is a fairly adequate statement. The term efficient might also be fruit, fruit, fruitfully replaced by the term undistorted. The archetypical, so what did he say here? Um, it's not as fruitful a seeking tool. So we're looking for the more fruitful seeking tools. Um, The archetypical mind, when penetrated lucidly, is a blueprint of the builded structure of all energy expenditures and all seeking without distortion. This, as a resource within the deep mind, is of great potential aid to the adept. We would ask for, oh yeah, <laughs> that's the last um, part of that. So they, they went on to talk about being out of time. Um, that seems like what we were saying before that it would be like almost the purest level of that archetype there is reaching that and one of those previous ones with the new mind is i guess contacting that part from what they're what they're referring to just in bigger terms there of the blueprint and energy expenditures i look at that sentence as a as a standalone sentence and and try to grasp how much more broad that it might be um, so not just of consciousness, but of uh, the structure of all things, of all energy expenditures and all seeking. Hmm. Yeah, it's it, uh, but it makes sense to me that if this is everything is coming from this, these original refinements to the cosmic mind, these these are the foundations. Or the blueprint, I guess. So, as we are baffling at each of these statements, still, I guess we uh, we could uh, wrap it up soon here um, at four o'clock. We can and keep in mind that understanding is not of this density, and that we're doing our best. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um,
So uh, yeah, I hope that we can be continuously more clear in our communication, but but I like that we keep coming back to these words. I don't know if we could do better than Ra's words. Um, it's just, I think the best we're going to do is come up with more uh, deeper understandings of the, the symbols, and then maybe in discussing the symbols more, we can we can keep getting deeper into the best um, explanations of what are the other conditions in which we would apply the other archetypes besides the matrix of the spirit, matrix of the mind, which is consciousness, which um, is still a great starting point, I think, uh, for every kind of seeking um, to to come back to that that realization of the of the infinite potential when you when we clear our minds. Before we've tapped into the potentiator, which would then start to apply limits to whatever um divinely inspired thought or need or whatever is arising yeah 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 and it definitely seemed like there was some indication at different points that the um sort of the purity or the like the purity at which we um understand the catalyst or use the catalyst um relates to the experience that we're having so it's it's as though there's a you know, I think I think as as we go through the archetypes one by one, a better understanding of the initial archetypes, um, and what what, what might it mean to become those archetypes might allow, allow us to have more powerful expressions and understandings of the of the subsequent archetypes as well. That's my general feeling from it. I agree, especially since they started with nine. You know, the first three three of those and. Um, so yeah, I think they give us a pretty good linear path to go through and contemplate these things. Yep. All right. Any other thoughts? No, oh, just looking forward to continuing the conversation here. This is always very insightful and quite fun, I think, and very helpful for us. Yep. Agreed. Thanks.